Without a sense of our Savior's personal closeness to us, salvation itself will seem remote and abstract. We must never write off the difference he makes, not solely by what he has done or said, but by what he is. Our faith can be no more real to us than he himself. How real is he? Welcome, everybody, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I'm here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. Last week, we introduced this season by talking about the individual calls of each of the apostles that Christ made. For instance, Matthew's call was not Peter's call, was not Paul's call. Matthew was a collaborator with Rome as a Jewish tax collector, which he had to leave entirely behind. Peter was a fisherman fishing with his family business. He caught a super abundance of fish in Luke 5, and he had to leave that behind. Paul was out to arrest and murder Christians, and let's be thankful he had to leave that behind. The context of the call is as individual as every person. But the objective of the call is always the same. Come, follow me. So what we want to do today is ask a new question. What is the problem for which Catholic discipleship is the solution? What I mean by that is this. There is a crisis in the church today. I don't know if you've noticed it. We all know this. We all know there's a horrible crisis going on in the church today. There's widespread confusion, doubt, skepticism, deconstructing discipleship. It seems like the only faithful Catholics are coming out of the third world, right? Developing nations are sending scores of priests here to America. Someone once asked Hans Urs von Balthasar in his last televised interview, Where are the emergencies in the church today? And he responded somewhat hauntingly, everywhere. The emergencies are everywhere. When Frank Sheed wrote his book, What Difference Does Jesus Make? He said that he would go before a group of kids and he would ask them this question. So he was going in the 1950s and 60s and he's talking to Catholic school kids. You know, this is where Christendom still has a culture in the US, in Canada, uh, in Ireland, in the UK. And here he is speaking to these people. And one of the things that they would say, he said, okay, imagine there's no law, obeying church law. There's no holy day of obligation. Why should we come to mass? He said, the majority of the kids were really good kids. He said, even some of them, the minority of kids had a devotion to the holy mass. And he said, the thing that shocked him was not a single one of those kids said Jesus or even holy communion. Another question that he would ask is, okay, so we celebrate the feast of Easter, Christ rising from the dead, the resurrection, the feast of Ascension Thursday, Christ ascending into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. So here's my question to you, what's Jesus doing up there right now? (laughs) What is Jesus doing right now? And he said none of them could answer that question. In Hebrews 10, it says he entered the heavenly places on our behalf. Okay, so he's doing something for us. What's he doing? He would eventually say that, look, Hebrews 7 says that he never ceases to make intercession for us. That means that Jesus desires our company, right? He actively desires this. Another thing that Frank Sheed points out, he said that he began collecting a bunch of these articles written by Roman Catholic priests who left the priesthood. 
I think many of us don't remember the time after the council. I mean, I was born in 1982, so clearly I don't remember. But right after the council, and, and maybe even during the 60s before the council, but especially in the early 70s, tons of Catholic priests left the priesthood. Tons of them left and right. I asked an elderly priest, why was everyone leaving? And he said, almost every week we were promised that we could get married one day as Catholic priests. The church was mere minutes from overturning that silly, arbitrary thing called celibacy. And when it didn't happen, many of the priests left the priesthood, which shocks me. But actually, Frank Shee gives me a little bit further information. He said that he surveyed a lot of these articles, what you could call a deconstruction narrative that now is very popular. He said that these articles were penned by Catholic priests who left in droves that they attacked the institutional church for injustice, for cowardliness, for not serving the poor, for not being involved in you know act, social activism and justice ministries and all that stuff. And he said, but out of the dozens that he had collected that were published you know, in, in newspapers and magazines he had access to, he said one thing struck him, and I think you could probably guess what I'm about to say. Not a single one of those articles mentioned Jesus Christ. He was not a factor in their deconstruction. Isn't that funny? So the question is, if you're not abandoning Jesus, then, then what is your discipleship connected to? The reality is, for most of us, Christ is not alive. Christ is not alive. What is Jesus doing right now? He's making intercession for you. Uh, okay. So what we want to do in this episode is we don't want to do an examination of conscience. And every knee shall bow, we tend to do that a lot, like do an examination of conscience about this, about that. But I'm going to follow Frank Sheed's advice in uh, his wonderful book, What Difference Does Jesus Make? And I'm going to say we need to do an examination of consciousness. That is, what is our awareness of Christ? In Frank Sheed's first chapter, he calls it the dimming of Christ, which means that the, the resplendent, radiant light of Jesus, what is happening to it right now? I think that in every age you find culture that is fighting against the countercultural nature of the gospel. The gospel being transcultural, being over culture, can always provoke a fight from the left or the right or both, usually both at the same time, in its demands, in its teaching. Uh, I remember C.S. Lewis talking about how we need to pray for and forgive our enemies during World War II. And people who were quote unquote good Christians said they would never forgive the Germans. In every age, I'm sure you can find this dimming of Christ in the culture. But the modern era is different in at least four things. I just want to point these out real quick. These, are, these aren't comprehensive. These are just things that I'm coming up with. Number one, modern sciences and the ideologies and philosophies around modern sciences encourage a purely materialistic view of the universe, unmoored from any concept of the divinity, whether the gods, God, whatever, right? So you have an excuse for people to not care about the divine. Second, the radical moral and political disunity, the antagonism, the hostility that we have in our culture renders all claims of the Lord Jesus suspect or just out and out rejected. You don't even get a hearing because you're making claims on someone's morality and they can just say, well, that's not my truth. Third, I think the superlative worship of technology as the perpetual source of distraction away from the most important things, things like contemplation, conversation, and communion with human beings and with God 
is the third thing that is just overwhelming our culture today. Technology pulls us away from meaningful things. As T.S. Eliot said, before the invention of the iPhone, we are distracted from distraction by distraction. And that is a thousand times more true today. Fourth and finally, I would say the annihilation of the family as the basic unit of society means there is little heritage, little rootedness, little that is passed on and handed down, both in terms of culture and religion, to the next generation. So they're not being brought up in something, which makes them easy prey for governments and corporations to give them an identity, to give them new roots in a product or an ideology or whatever. So here's the thing. The world obscures our vision of the church and of Christ, but the church, and this is part of the crisis today, the church can obscure our vision of Jesus. Now that might sound weird, but we all know it's true. Within the church, we have our own peculiar crises that are built upon these worldly crises. So first, we have the constant drumbeat of the failures of our institutional church and the hierarchy. You can't go online for one second without being slammed by it. The news is filled with it, parishes, dioceses, the Vatican are seemingly filled with nothing but scandal, disappointment, and then desertion. So we have that to contend with. Second, we have scripture scholarship in Catholic universities with very notable exceptions uh, and in Protestant universities and churches have seemed to do their very best to undermine, deny, attack, and mock the historical reliability of the gospels and the rest of scripture and thus undermine the average layman's and laywoman's devotional life. They've attacked the solid foundation of the Bible, sometimes with theories built on nothing more than clouds as a foundation. And it's super troubling. And because I had to study this stuff in college, I nerd out over this stuff, but we'll put the historical critical method and go through that stuff a little bit later. They can be useful. They can also be stupid. Third, the widespread confusion on liturgy. Yes, yes, I'm talking about liturgy. But think about this. The widespread confusion on liturgy in its practice, its celebration, the so-called liturgy wars that we hear a lot about. These, though, tend to add more emphasis on the traditional teaching of the church of lex orandi, lex credendi. You should look it up in the catechism. It's a wonderful phrase. Lex orandi, how we pray, is the law of how we believe or what we believe. And this is true because for many people, they don't even know whom they are worshiping. So when we have confusion when it comes to the liturgy, we will always have confusion when it comes to doctrine and vice versa. They mutually inform one another. Fourth, but not finally, I'm sure there are many more that I couldn't come up with. There are many who are sincere Catholics. They love their Catholic faith, but they don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know the Son of God, the Son of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't know the way he lived and acted and spoke and felt. We don't know this because we don't read the Gospels. Jesus promised to be with us to the end, and he actually wants to be with us. So that's the problem. What is the solution? The solution is Catholic discipleship. Now, when we talk about discipleship, what are we talking about? We're not talking about believing in Jesus. Let me get into this. Discipleship is how we follow Jesus Christ. The word methetes in the Greek means literally a student of a master, right? So if you are a disciple, you are a disciplined one. You are entering into the discipline of a school of thought, or in this case, of an ancient rabbi, right? So you are entering into discipleship. Now for Jewish discipleship of a rabbi, the notion was that you didn't just follow his teaching like we do maybe St. Thomas Aquinas, but we follow his very lifestyle. Namely, if you so love Thomas Aquinas, you're gonna become a Dominican. But even more than that, you studied his very mannerisms on how he ate and drank, how he slept, 
the clothes that he wore, everything, because you wanted to embody the teaching, the school of thought, the way of life. See, that's it. Christianity is not a list of beliefs. It is a way of life. It is a practice. That's why the phrase, are you a practicing Catholic, is way more important than are you a Catholic, right? Because it's one thing to say, yeah, I was baptized, but I don't really go to church. Then the answer is, I'm not practicing. I'm not walking in the way of the Lord Jesus. Do you really think the dynamic, now think about this. This blew my mind when Frank Shee kind of laid it out for us. In the early church, do you really think the dynamic explosion of Christianity in the first three, four, 500 years, let's just take the first 100 years, the apostolic era, do you think this explosion of Christianity throughout most of the world, North Africa, into Europe, Asia Minor, into Asia, into the Indian subcontinent, do we really think that the people were like, great, Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, now I can go to heaven. What happened before his death, I don't really care about. Do you think people thought that? Do you think people acted that way? Like, nah, who cares what he talked like? Who cares what he did for people? I just want to know that he died, that he rose, that he ascended, and now I get to go to heaven if I accept him into my life. No. They longed to hear the great story of Jesus. What was he like? What was he like? Must have been the most common question that was asked the apostles, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mary Magdalene, all of the early disciples of Jesus. What was he like? What was it like to be that close to the Son of God? So discipleship starts with the question, what was Jesus like? And it pursues that answer by constantly returning to the Gospels and to prayer. Remember when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice, my sheep know me, and they hear my voice, and they follow after me. Right. I had a buddy who went, and I think I might have shared this story before, but I have a buddy who went to Ireland, and he was hanging out with a shepherd for the day. I don't know if it was like part of his program or whatever that he was doing. And the shepherd said, watch this, call to the sheep. And he starts calling out to the sheep, and maybe one or two looked at him, but then none of them paid attention to him. So then the shepherd said something and then whistled, and all the sheep just slowly you know, started trotting over to him because the sheep know his voice, and that is important. So this understanding of finding out what Jesus was like moves beyond what should I believe, right? Because belief or faith is absolutely essential, but more essential still is not just believing, but following Christ. So what was Jesus like so that I can imitate the way of the master? And we only, here's the, here's the reality. We only follow those whom we love, Discipleship is not the same thing as really, really, really liking being Catholic or loving my local parish or even loving the universal church. That's great. Do all that. We human beings have a remarkable ability, though, to be fans of something without committing to it. In the immortal words of Frank Sheed, he says, this is a strange phenomenon. We have Christians who believe in Jesus sincerely, who try to live by Christ's standards, would rather die than deny him, yet... We do not spend much time with him or involve him in our daily living. We do not seek to meet him in the gospels. We would find it hard to figure out what the actual difference Jesus makes in our lives. See, brothers and sisters, the dangerous thing is we've fallen in love with an idea and how it makes sense of life and makes sense of our politics and makes sense of our social group and our sexual mores and this, that, and the other, but we're not encountering him 
And so in our daily lives, we're not bringing his story, his life, his example into our lives. And I think this is a tool, one of the greatest tools of Satan. I am absolutely sure of this. We have abstracted away Christ. We have smiled at him as we shoo him out the door. So here's Frank Sheed yet again. Without a sense of our Savior's personal closeness to us, salvation itself will seem remote and abstract. We must never write off the difference he makes, not solely by what he has done and said, but by what he is. Our faith can be no more real to us than himself. How real is he? So what we do often in the church, whether we are priests, parochial vicars, bishops, catechists, you know, all all sorts of roles within the church, whether we are volunteers, whether we're floor sweepers, whatever, when we reduce Jesus to an abstraction, it tends to result in one of three courses, tends to take us down one of three paths. One, we reduce Jesus to kindness, right? Oh, Jesus, he's so sweet. He's so kind. He's so loving. He's so merciful. He's so meek. He's so mild. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is all of those things. Jesus is kind. Jesus is comforting. Jesus loves people. Jesus is overwhelmingly merciful. I just taught a bunch of high school students about the woman caught in adultery. Is there anyone here to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Those were words that she was dying or rather literally living to hear. But we say it's a reduction because clearly Jesus is kind, but clearly that's not all he is. We ignore the fact that Jesus is angry, stern. Sometimes he's joyful. Sometimes he's rebuking. Sometimes he's sarcastic. And sometimes he's sad. Kindness is one of his traits, but not his only trait. Just ask the Pharisees if Jesus is kind. Just ask the money changers in the temple if Jesus is kind. Now, one of the things I have to say here as a caveat is just because Jesus drove the money changers out with whips and flipped over the tables, he did that once. He didn't do it every day. So don't use it as an excuse to be uh, angry and uh, you know a jerk all that, all that often. Jesus didn't only drive out the money changers, but too often we ignore in our abstractions of Jesus just how human God was. Remember, in Jesus Christ, Christ is God. That says just as much about Christ as it does about God. This is what God looks like when he clothes himself in human nature. So the first course is reduction to kindness. The second course is reduction to what we call neighborness. Now, this sounds a little similar, but let me let me push it a little further. Neighborness means that I find Jesus today, you know, all the miracles and parables, well and good, well and good, good chap, and this is me patting you on the top of your head condescendingly, like, well, good, but what does that matter for us today? What does it matter that he healed 10 lepers back then? What is he doing for us today? And so what they say is, I find Jesus today in my neighbor. Let me tell you, I have heard this growing up so many times, finding Jesus in my neighbor. That's great. That's great. If it propels me to love my neighbor as myself, if it propels me to serve my neighbor, especially my neighbor in need, if it propels me to actually view the service of my neighbor as a salvation or damnation issue, as Jesus himself taught in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, Jesus alone of all the divinities in all the ancient religions, he identified with the weakest, the poorest, the most vulnerable right? That's amazing. He said, when you do it for these least ones, you do it for me. And so what we need to do is understand like Jesus Christ is not uh, telling us not to find him in our neighbor. 
But again, it's a reduction because here's the problem. If you are looking for Jesus in your neighbor and you don't read the gospels, um, what Jesus are you looking for? I mean, really? Like, how, how do you know him? Maybe the Jesus you're looking for is the one that looks shockingly, remarkably like yourself and not Jesus. Another problem here is it sounds so loving to find Jesus Christ in your neighbor, but surely studying and knowing Christ in the gospels is actually the best and most powerful way to equip you to find him in your neighbor, right? So all the stuff that I'm saying, the kindness and the neighborliness, that that doesn't discount our need to constantly go back and seek him in the gospels every single day. The last abstraction, this is right, your kindness and the neighborliness, you know, maybe those are some people on the left, people who are, you know, they got the bleeding heart for their neighbor, for the poor, awesome, all well and good, right? Remember, I affirm all of these things. I just don't want to reduce it to that. I also affirm this third thing, which is the theological diagram. I love the way that Frank Sheed talks. The theological diagram is this understanding of if I just have the right series of doctrinal propositions and articles of faith, then everything is fine, right? Then I got it. I've reduced Jesus to the hypostatic union and the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Now, now let me clarify something. The dogmas and doctrines of Christianity teach the truth of Jesus, okay? But even the creed, Even the creed, the great creeds of the church, but especially the Apostles' Creed, the oldest one, that doesn't suffice for Christianity unless it's joined at the heart of the Mass with the gospel. When the gospel, I mean, think about the creed. It goes from infancy straight into suffering. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. What did he do in the middle there, right? Well, guess what? In the Mass, which is so perfect, in the liturgy, we have the gospel proclaimed. These are the words and deeds of Jesus, right? So these are the words and deeds of Jesus right before we get to the understanding, the clear doctrines and dogmas. We need both, right? But we don't want to reduce Jesus to just these things. So too often I have found in myself that we have these precise Aristotelian categories, which again are true and good, but we actually think that we can get to know Christ by studying more about the divine nature and more about human nature. Rather than spending time getting to know his actual deeds, what he actually said, whom he actually spoke with, and who he actually healed, and what their reactions were. Right? See, this is the problem because this is so dangerous. We can believe all the orthodox things, but we can lose touch with God himself. So, yes, I do believe these things are tools of Satan that he can use to destroy us. I think that very clearly you and I in the church suffer from the reality that the church is, it can blind us, church politics, church, church suffering, church pain, church uh, nonsense, scandals, all of this stuff can blind us from actually seeing Christ. But here's the good news. You don't have to sit back in what Frank G calls a pious coma where we do our scripture reading and scripture listening, right? We don't have to sit there and just let complacency overwhelm us. No, here's the beautiful thing. All we need to do is return, return, return over and over again to the gospels. And don't just be content with knowing the general story. Spend time imagining, picturing, reading the other scenes in the gospels that complement the one that you're reading right there. Like just immerse yourself into this because the problem is, you will encounter the real Christ. You will encounter the one that you need to have your own personal knowledge of. 
I like this ending part from Frank Sheet. He said, it's easy to invent one's own Christ out of one's own best self. But as a way of actually treating Christ, it's pathetic beyond all reason. Live with the Gospels then. And by the Gospels, I don't mean what's left of them when the latest critic put his knife back in its sheath. When you have really lived with what's there, you can learn from the critics, but you will not be at their mercy. For you will have your own personal knowledge of Christ and your own individual reaction, not to the Christ event, which scholars use, it's so horrific, but to Jesus of Nazareth. With that knowledge, you can consider then what the theologians and scholars have for your prophet. So brothers and sisters, our turning now into discipleship says, if I want to follow Christ, I have to look at him in the scriptures. I have to encounter him in the scriptures and not just him in the four gospels, although that's the principal place that we go to. I would also like to invite you to continue studying the gospel of Mark. If you've been keeping up with us, if you did your homework from last week to this week, the challenge was read the gospel of Mark every day, do two chapters a day, one day do three, and you'll be finished with the gospel of Mark by the time this episode drops. But more than this, what I want you to do is do the same thing again, right? So when I say more than this, I mean, keep doing Mark's gospel, because now when you go back and read it again, you will have familiarity with the story and you will begin observing details you didn't know was there. And maybe some of those details will challenge your theological diagram. And that's good. Maybe it'll challenge your reductivist view of the kindness of Jesus or the neighborliness of Jesus. After all, we need to understand this simple truth. The first gift that we seek from the Gospels is growth in intimacy with Jesus. The rest depends upon that. A great sermon, as Frank Sheed said, may set us vibrating to the preacher, but we must have our own vibration to Christ. Without that, reading books on the love of Christ is like reading someone else's love letters. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to throw it out to a quick commercial break from Ascension Press. We love them to death, so check out the good stuff that they have to offer. Also, call to action here. Text EKSB to 33777. That's EKSB to 33777 to get on our emailing list. So what I'm going to do is as I reference documents and articles and books, those are going to be included, yes, in the show notes, but also in our emails. And we're not going to spam you. You're going to love it. So text us right now, EKSB to 33777. We'll be right back. Two thousand years ago, Jesus Christ chose corrupt, broken, imperfect, sinful men to be the foundation of his church. And because these broken, imperfect men chose to remain in relationship with Jesus, they became saints. And they were used by Jesus to transform hearts and minds two thousand years later. I invite you to check out my book, Broken and Blessed where you'll find practical tools to overcome habitual sin, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and to walk with an imperfect church toward a perfect God who is calling all of us to perfection over time. To order the paperback book or audiobook, Broken and Blessed, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. All right, so this concludes our examination of consciousness. Are we actually aware 
of Christ? Are we actually understanding that we do not belong to the church, we do not belong to the Pope, we do not belong to the hierarchy? They're not the point. If we think they are handling the church outrageously, then our first instinctive reaction should be to grieve for Christ, whose work they are damaging, whose face, Frank Sheed says, they are obscuring. The trouble is when we see the popes and the bishops only, but we don't see Jesus Christ. The world does not listen to Christ, but do we? In this context, I want to to give you a little nugget of what Frank Sheed hinted at. He said this in one paragraph, kind of smack dab in the middle that I thought was so fascinating. He's talking about the Christ event that I referenced earlier, this academic conception of Jesus is not as a someone, but as an event to be studied, a state of affairs, a state of things, and that his life, death, resurrection, they're just like parables and stories or fables. Just, we don't need to deny it. We just smile at it and smile away as if real history misses the point. But he responds with this beautiful note. This is why Mary is the queen of evangelization. This is why Mary is also, in our Marian doctrine of the church, we hold that every true thing that we say about Mary, all the Marian doctrines and dogmas, safeguards and is derived from what we believe about Jesus. But this is how Sheed applies this to our lives. He says, the Blessed Virgin Mary safeguards Jesus Right? He prevents us in our Catholic devotional life from believing that, that Jesus is just an abstract concept because abstractions don't have mothers. And maybe this is why we don't hear tons of sermons about Mary anymore. The idea of fostering great devotion to Mary safeguards the humanity, the historical reality of Jesus Christ, born of the virgin that he came into our world, the son of God, and he sits at the right hand of the father on our behalf, and he never ceases making intercession for us. So why do we go to mass? Jesus Christ, Holy Communion. We go to receive the one that we love, but the only way we can love him is if we get to know him. God bless y'all. Next week, we're going to talk about Christian prayer and how discipleship leads us to ever deeper forms of prayer. God bless. God bless.